Hey, it's Josh. Before we start, I want to ask you a quick favor. If there's someone you'd like to hear from, someone you think would be a great addition to the show, would you take a minute to let me know? Just shoot me an email at josh at worklifeathome.com. I really want to make sure I'm making shows you love to listen to, and that means I need to hear from you. Thanks. What I tell people is that, you know, you got to look at the big picture in the long haul here. This is about networking and relationships. And you need to be building those from your first day in this business until your last. You know, I'm an introvert by nature. I mean, networking did not come naturally to me, but I networked fiercely. And it wasn't because I recognized the value it could bring in terms of new business and all that. I did it as a survival mechanism. Are you new to working from home? Maybe you're figuring out how to manage a distributed team. Are you homeschooling your kids while trying to get something, anything else done? You've come to the right place. Work Life at Home talks with both newbies and experts as we explore the tools, tips, and techniques that will help you make the most of this new way of working. I'm Josh Freeman. Welcome home. Way back before the pandemic, before Zoom, before LinkedIn, before it was relatively easy, there were two companies in Southern California who had the odd idea that working from home could be a great way to run their operation. One of them was a small graphic design firm called Free Associates, which I had just started. Another was a big, famous, successful advertising agency called Shiat Day, one of the most creative and innovative agencies in the world. My guest today is Zach Rosenberg, who was working at Shiat Day as an account executive when all this happened. We're going to talk about what went well, what went badly, and how much things have changed since those dark ages of dial-up modems, ubiquitous beepers, and big, expensive, clunky cell phones. We'll talk about how to pick an agency and how to develop business during a lockdown and a lot more. After a 38-year career working at both full-service and media standalone agencies, Zach is now a growth consultant, working with clients on helping them find marketing solutions and working with agencies, helping them with their business development initiatives. Zach Rosenberg, welcome to Work Life at Home. Well, thank you, Josh. That was a great introduction. You're welcome. Glad you <laughs> can do it. Let's start by talking about Shiat Day. This is back in 1993 to set the stage. And can you just sort of give everybody a little background about what they were doing, why they decided to do it, that sort of stuff? Sure. Thank you. You know, I was an account executive in the early 90s at Shiat Day. You know, I ran a bunch of accounts and, and I was feeling like I was at the center of the universe because... Shaite was the envy of everybody. Everyone wanted to work there. And I was very blessed that I was working there. And Jay Shiat was very involved, very hands-on. And he announced in 1992 that he wanted to create a task force to help define what the future of an agency should look like. Well, I was a young, ambitious account guy. And I said, I got to get on this task force. How fantastic would that be? 
to be part of the creation of whatever the outcome of it is going to be. And so I, you know, I asked around, I said, hey, how do I get on this? And uh, fortunately, I was selected as a handful of folks from all over the world, from different Shide offices. And I was part of this task force and I was thrilled. And I remember we kicked it off. We all went off site for a long weekend and we brainstormed the future. And we had multiple off sites to try to figure out what we should stand for with what a ad agency should look like moving forward. And that's a whole other story. But what came out of that was the creation of the virtual office. Jay Shy was determined to be paperless. And as you can imagine, at an ad agency, there's a lot of paper. There's yeah, sure. reprints of ads. Uh, there are media kits. So there's a lot of paper. And so it was pretty daunting to think about, you know, how do we get rid of paper and how do we go virtual and how do we free employees to work anywhere. So we did a lot of work to figure it out. And we, at one point, we launched it and it was wild. So think about, we moved into the binocular building in Venice, which was just this most astounding creation. And we ended up having communal space. So if we were going to work in the office on a given day, we would walk in and we would go to a kiosk and we would grab a laptop. We would go to a different kiosk and we would grab a quasi cell phone that only worked inside and around the building. And it wasn't as big as those old Motorola's. It was smaller, but it was still, you know, a device that you use for your communications. And then what you would do is you would find a random space somewhere and you would work off your phone and your laptop. If you opted to work from home or off-site, particularly if you wanted to work at home, you programmed through reception that any incoming phone calls would be automatically transferred to your home phone. So it would appear seamless to a client that you were not physically in your office. The mail room, and of course, if you think about 1993, there was a lot more paper, a lot more mail than there is today. The mail room took all incoming mail, scanned it, and emailed it to us. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a very early time to have been doing that. It really was. And it was really an adjustment because we weren't as much reliant on email and scanning and all that stuff. It was all kind of new. So that was the concept. And it was really remarkable. But what was so amazing is it created this new etiquette that you had to have. Because if you think about it, you have a cell phone. Mm -hmm. When we really didn't walk around with our cell phones back then. And the funniest thing, I'll never forget, you're walking the halls and somebody's talking on the phone while they're walking and you think they're talking to you as they pass you. <laughs> yes. And you're like, hey, what's going on? And they ignore you because they're on the phone talking to somebody. It was a very different behavior. Yeah. And the most uh, intrusive part was when you walked into a conference room to attend a meeting and you hadn't turned your phone off, you know, nine times out of 10, it will ring during the meeting. Right. So we had to create this rule that when you walked into a meeting, you had to turn your phone off and inevitably someone's phone would ring. And it was very disruptive because back then, again, we weren't walking around with our cell phones. 
So it was really kind of strange. The whole thing was strange. I'm sure. I mean, it must be a little bit like now when you see somebody with wireless earbuds and they're walking down the street and it looks like they're nuts. <laughs> they're just That's chatting right. away to nothing. And when you think about the people that work in our industry, we're already nuts, right? So, right. Uh, so it would be a natural assumption. <laughs> and then I remember there was a creative director that his voicemail message was, please leave me a message because I have my phone in my pocket on vibrate and I really <laughs> like to get incoming calls. <laughs> like, okay. That sounds twisted. like day. That sounds good. Exactly. But one, and then we also had a locker room and everyone had a locker, just like you were in high school. And that locker room was designed to store your stuff. Oh, right. Because of course it's not in your desk because the desks are generally available to everybody. Right. But we are creatures of habit. So what happens is you work in a space and you kind of keep your stuff there and you go back there the next morning, as opposed to going to your locker, putting it away, getting mm -hmm. it out, moving around. Right. Kind of just, you know, we're creatures of habit. But then think about the media department and the media kits back then. You know, these huge kits you would get from all the sales force, right. all the salespeople. So you got all these kits. So what do you do with it? It filled your locker within a month. The other fundamental problem was that the, the notion of the new space was that no more than, say, 60% of the staff would be in the office on a given day. But we ended up probably tracking about 80, 90%, which meant there weren't enough laptops, there weren't enough phones, and there wasn't enough space. I remember that space. And I remember I, I was in that space. I don't know why, but I definitely was in there. And I remember there was a thing about Jay Shiat took over two cubicles or something. Is that, is that right? I don't remember that. Okay. I, I have so many other memories just about his artwork around the office. I remember when we went virtual and we had the space all done, he was walking in the halls and he found a file cabinet and he opened it up and they were reprints of print ads, I think, mm -hmm. for Nissan. And he's like, well, what are these doing here? And someone in the traffic department said, well, th those are just our reprints that we're storing. And he goes, well, no, we don't want that. We don't need that. We are paperless. Get rid of it. And he went crazy. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and the stories just go on and on. I mean, it was just, <laughs> you know, it, it was just remarkable. But it was just such an interesting, innovative time. It was just so glorious to be a part of it. I, I assume that Lee Clow was around then, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And what was what was his take on all this? I think he was very on board with it. And he was really, you know, absolutely pushing for uh, this whole notion of being virtual. You know, it was all part of the sensibility of being, you know, a cutting edge, innovative agency yeah. that's doing breakthrough work. And all this would inspire creativity. I think that was really the end game here is how could we be, become more creative and do better work for our clients? You know, the stories go on and on, but I'll digress for one moment. I'll, not, I'll never forget this. There was a conference room near the binocular building that was a funny shape, kind of long. It had a glass ceiling in the back half. And I remember Lee Clow called and said, hey, we're pitching a brand. Uh, I'd like you to be part of the pitch team. And I'm like, great, what's the brand? And he goes, it's Memorex. And I remember Memorex, and most younger folks will not because they made tapes and then they made CDs. They were a client of mine as well. 
Uh, funny. <laughs> For some of us who've been around, the ad campaign was quite iconic. It was Ella Fitzgerald singing, mm-hmm. you know, singing. And the tagline is, is it live or is it Memorex? And her singing on, on Memorex tape, you know, the reproduction was so good that the champagne glass still broke. Right. So Lee was very excited because he thought we could bring that campaign back, contemporize it and really bring that brand back. So it was a very noble opportunity. I I was all into it. And I'll never forget, we pitched it. And what we did is we rigged on a stool, a champagne glass. So at the end of the pitch, when Lee gave his final speech, he would say the line, is it live or is it Memorex? And that champagne glass would explode. So a little bit of theatrics. (laughs) Yeah, nice. But, But given that it's shy day, we went further. And we had the entire ceiling rigged to explode at the same time. Oh my God. <laughs> and with hopefully fake glass. Yes. And it was behind Good. us. But he oh gave a speech. God. He said the line not only did the champagne glass explode, but the entire ceiling exploded. The clients jumped out of their chair. We were hired on the spot. Uh. The downside <laughs> was the budget was so small, we couldn't afford television, which is what Lee wanted. Hmm. And we never produced television, but that's the creativity. That's the stuff that just made you so proud to work at a place like that oh, and to yeah. be involved with the virtual office in 1993. I mean, this is 27 years ago. And then when I think about places I've worked since and people I've met who worked at agencies and how their agencies do not subscribe to being virtual at all. We did this 27 years ago, and for the most part, it worked. But a lot of agencies pre-COVID were so resistant to it. And I think that, you know, there's ways people like to work. And I think some agencies feel that if they give one employee the opportunity to work from home part-time, then it opens up a floodgate of everyone else wanting to do it too. God forbid. And I think that's why there's resistance. I think it was an all or nothing thing. It's like if you let one person do it, Everyone else is going to want to do it and you're going to have chaos. So you don't do it. And I think that happens a lot. I'm sure. But now people have to have everybody do it and they're finding out they can function perfectly fine like this. At least that's been what's what I've been hearing and that's what I've been seeing. And I think, you know, there is definitely a control freak kind of issue with this where managers are very nervous that the people aren't really doing anything, you know? I know. But I think if you... If you are measuring what you're asking them to do rather than how many hours they work. Right. I think my also my understanding is they're more efficient. They like doing what they do more and they get more done and they uh, stay on track with what you need. So I'm sure there are plenty of jobs that don't work this way. But most of the kind of white collar stuff and certainly creative stuff, I've been doing it this way for 27 years and it seems to be just dandy. What I'm hearing from agencies is that it could be a little bit more difficult for creative because creative requires a certain degree of collaboration. You know, we all loved having ideation sessions and brainstorming sessions, and it's really hard to do that over Zoom. You know, we used to stuff ourselves in a conference room and we'd have a whiteboard and we'd ideate. And that was really, that that energy was amazing. Um, But yes, what we're finding is that people are working productively. They're working harder. They're finding a better work-life balance. And for me, I've been doing it, you know, about six months. I, I started my home office before COVID. 
the fact that I wasn't commuting anymore was so transformational to my being. Yes. <laughs> it was just <laughs> incredible because if you're spending 45 minutes early in the morning fighting traffic, you know, you're kind of stressed when you start your day. And then at the end of the day, you got to slog your way home and you finally walk in that door and you're just, you're, you're finished, you know, after a very long day right. or you have a dinner or a function that night. It makes for very long days. Yep. Um, I think the downside is that you still get up early, you go right to your desk and then maybe you walk to the kitchen and grab a sandwich, but all of a sudden you've put 10 hours in your day. So you get a lot more accomplished. And of course, when you're relying on meetings through Zoom, you go from meeting to meeting to meeting. In the old days, you would have an hour between meetings, perhaps to physically get to your next meeting. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to people, people found that, you know, having that break between meetings gives you an opportunity to kind of decompress a bit. You know, you're in your car, you make a couple of phone calls, you listen to music or a podcast. And you're, you've got that quick little refreshment before your next meeting. Right. You know, now people are going from Zoom to Zoom to Zoom and there's no break. Which is a really bad idea. And really people, I mean, if people know what you're describing and think about it for a minute, they can schedule their time so that they do have breaks in their day. That's, you know, that's allowed. In fact, that's encouraged because it's productive. Yes. But people do have a tendency to disregard that and to, you know, think that they can hop from one thing to another effectively. And it doesn't work very well. I agree. Or you just end up getting really fatigued at the, at the end of mm -hmm. the day. And there's a thing called Zoom fatigue, apparently. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny. There's all this new etiquette. Even 27 years ago, you know, the etiquette of turning your phone off before you walk into a meeting. The strangest thing, just going back, that I remembered was, you know, when you go to the restroom and your phone rings, what do you do? Oh God. Yes. Because you know, now, you know, <laughs> you'll see people standing, standing there on the phone. I know. But 27 years ago, why is this guy talking to himself? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It was very bizarre back then. Yeah. Um, I still think it's bizarre. I think like you could have a moment. <laughs> it's like, let me go pee by myself without being interrupted. It seems like a well, nice thing. I thought there was an unwritten rule where you're not allowed to talk to people in restrooms. Yeah. If there isn't, there should be. Let's <laughs> get your own private time. And these guys bellowing at somebody from the stall always cracks me up. I know. Yeah. But the, the other thing I was going to mention is that um, I find it very odd when you're on a Zoom call, not for a formal meeting, but for some sort of conversation with folks. Someone's munching away at lunch and you're watching them chewing their food and having lunch mm -hmm. and it's really bizarre. Mm -hmm. And then if you do have Zoom meetings at lunchtime and you're hungry, you know, can you turn your video off? Because I don't want to see people chewing their food during a Zoom right. call. That, that to me is just really annoying. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're eating with them. Thanksgiving yeah, dinner, that's different. <laughs> you yeah. could do that, you know, right. but yeah, that is, that is weird. And there's definitely a whole new range of etiquette on that stuff. Yeah. One of my guests, I was talking to her about this and it had to do with zoom backgrounds. Her thing right. was her CEO uses them and encourages them. And that's a really interesting little sort of subtle piece of etiquette, because I think there's kind of, um, a, a discouraging 
aspect when you use zoom backgrounds, if other people aren't doing it, you look like you're hiding something. And if the, the sort of leader, whoever that might be uses them, it encourages other people to use them. And then people get creative with them, which is really fun. And I know uh, my son works for Facebook and they do this all the time, like all their Zoom stuff. They've got crazy backgrounds going on all the time and people make custom ones and it's just part of the culture and it's fun. And that makes a lot of sense. And then the Zoom call isn't intruding on, you know, their kid doing something in the background or their spouse trying to go back and forth unobtrusively like mine sometimes has to. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's nice. Zoom backgrounds work really well, I think. No, I think that's a really great concept. And, and I always enjoy when I see people doing something creative. Um, I'm really, really interested in um, when I do another agency review, which I have kind of one on deck. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't done one since COVID. So since we can't have face-to-face meetings, you know, I'm going to get schooled to a degree on how agencies are handling pitches to clients in this new environment because Zoom chemistry, you know, it's a whole thing now. Like, how do you, how do you express chemistry in on a Zoom call? I don't know the answer to that other than, you know, there's some things I've seen and done that are logical in terms of how you choreograph it and how you pass the baton between people. But it should be very interesting to see how that works moving forward, especially in the pitch situation. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Where where really people like to try to control every aspect of it because you really want that business. And so it tends to be very choreographed. And uh, choreographing on Zoom is almost always awkward in my experience. I haven't seen anybody do that gracefully lately. The one thing that I have noticed, and I don't know if it's because I'm working off a laptop, but when you're on a Zoom call and you're presenting a deck, the participants get boxed on the right side of the screen. Mm-hmm. But on my laptop, it intrudes onto the deck and I can't see the content on the far right of the deck. Ah. So I don't know if this is symptomatic of having a laptop and a smaller screen. If I had a, a desktop or two screens, obviously, I imagine it's not an issue. But does that suggest that maybe PowerPoint deck should be designed to limit the space bleeding over to the right side to allow for the boxes of people? Probably. And there are other tools. There's a great piece of software that's being developed by the guys who started Evernote. It's called Mm-hmm. It's M-M-H-M-M. And really? uh, yeah, and it's made for what you're kind of what you're describing in that when you present a deck, you present it kind of like a newscaster. So the image is like over your shoulder. Um, that's really awesome. Yeah. So you still have contact with the person you're talking to and there's kind of that personal connection. It stays, but you can do, you know, a slide deck and it isn't obscured by anything because it isn't even, That's brilliant. it's not even shared the same way. So you don't have that weird jump in the Zoom application where it suddenly covers your window or disappears off the screen or whatever it happens to be doing. So worth a try, you know, especially yeah. for pitches. I think it would be great for pitches. Tell me the name again. It's called mm-hmm, M-M-H-M-M. And I'll put wow. a link in the show notes for the listening people here. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, let's, since we transitioned from Shiat Day to your new venture, tell me about your work at home setup. How you're, how are you physically set up and how are you 
trying to possibly keep your work from intruding completely on your family life and all that? Well, it's really interesting. When I first started, I didn't have a home office. My wife has a home office. Mm -hmm. She has a business. I've, uh, we have two boys in college. So I just use their bedrooms. I just went back and forth depending upon who was here. Mm -hmm. And I, I sat in their rooms and, uh, I worked off the laptop and, uh, you know, it was not quite formalized. It was just kind of to get things started. And, um, then ultimately I converted our guest room into a proper office. Mm -hmm. There's still a bed in here, yeah. but we went to living spaces and I found this awesome desk. I had a little TV. Um, I've got my setup. I've got my accessories that I need, a printer. Uh And um, there's some pet food on the shelf here for (laughs) excess pet food. Uh And a little file cabinet. And I'm I'm set up. I'm very comfortable. There's a fan in the room. Uh, There's a window. And um, it's great. It's just pretty pleasant. Um, the downside is I'm next to the laundry room. So sometimes the laundry room gets loud, the washing mm-hmm. machine. Mm-hmm. Every now and then one of the pets will like come in and meow or bark. Yes. Sounds kind of um, normal. I don't have little kids bopping around, so that's not an issue. Um, but uh, it's very comfortable. I'm very lucky that I have this space and it's separate from my wife and, you know, one kid's at college, the other one stayed at home this semester, but he's going back in January. So we'll be empty nesters again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I always think back to that BBC uh, footage of a very serious uh, reporter uh, talking from his home office and two little babies came in. Oh, room. I've seen this footage. That. Yeah. One's in that little circle wheel thing. And then there looks like a wife or somebody crawling in grabbing them, pulling them back out, uh-huh. of the, out of the room. And it was <laughs> yeah. like, you know, back then it was like, that's mortifying. My God, I would be so embarrassed. I, I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. And now in this era of COVID, you know, you, you kind of enjoy it. We're much more uh, empathetic to that. Exactly. Stuff. I think it's charming. It's, it's a, it is. it's a really interesting thing about like how things have changed and how perception has changed so much. If you watch any talk shows, obviously nobody can be in a studio and no audiences. Right. So, you know, all the interviews are zoom calls and right. you're, you know, you're watching Matthew McConaughey or somebody, you know, talking to you on this, yeah, this terrible, like, well, Tom Hanks's was actually okay on SNL, but, but whoever yeah. it is, they, they have usually it's the camera's terrible. The lighting's terrible. You're seeing right. them, you know, with no professional makeup half the time, you know, and, and so the presentation is so weirdly amateur and yet there's this kind of charming humanity to it where you really feel like, oh, I get to be in, you know, Matthew McConaughey's house and, huh, there's his, you know, there's his kitchen back there and, huh, there's a painting on the wall. wonder what that is. And this, just this kind of feeling of, of being more connected to those people and less 
affected by the gloss, you know, that they put on when they're in a studio situation, they've been made up and dressed up and they've got five minutes in front of an audience, whole different behavior cycle. And I like it. Yeah, I, I think it's really I cool. I wonder if there's like a premeditation of, you know, planting things in the background just to give people a cue. Mm, I'm sure. Into your, you know, a little window into your personality. You've got something back there, like a where's Waldo. You spot something. Mm -hmm. um, it is. It's very curious when you see celebrities in particular, you know, what does their living room look like? Uh, yeah. What's on the shelf? Yeah. It is pretty interesting. Is that an that, apartment? That very we see yeah, cottage, exactly. cottage cheese ceilings up there. What is this? Yeah, <laughs> or how, does that, how does that young person live in such a big place? Uh-huh. Is yeah. it the parents' house? Is it the... Exactly. So, yeah, it's very, very... And some people sit outside. Right. And, yes. And I guess that... I, I wouldn't mind doing that, but then I don't know if I could see my laptop in the sunlight. I, don't I know how understand. That works. I've never... Probably really depends tried, if you have yeah. your laptop in the shade or the sun, you know? I suppose, but yeah. it would be nice to do that, actually, uh -huh. now that I think about it. I've actually done day. meetings outside. I've actually done Zoom meetings on our back. Uh, we have a we have a little back patio thing, and I sit out there, and, you know, it's it's great, but not in the blasting sun. That doesn't work real well. It's got to no, be a little bit later in the day when I, there's some shadow there. But I also feel I feel for folks who have, you know, Wi-Fi issues because yeah, sure. not everyone has the benefit of a good Wi-Fi mm -hmm. uh, strength. And it's it's frustrating when they're breaking up and getting, you know, locked out or, you know, they lose their connection. That's so, pretty tough. So back in the Shiat Day days, there was no Wi-Fi period. What what was did you not to digress too much, but just to go back for a second, what, what happened with people who didn't have great technology or were sort of off the grid or whatever? Did they just get lost or did people try to contact them or did they turn their phones off or what what would happen? Well, I remember this. I thought of this just recently that there was a wiring, a cable called Category 5, if I remember. Oh, yeah. Yep. And category five was like an industrial strength cable that you would hook your laptop into. Right. And that would give you great connectivity. Mm -hmm. And I remember that this is what, 26 years ago, we bought a house and it was being built. And I said, could you put category five throughout the house since it's in the framing stage? Mm -hmm. And it was too late. Mm. And I was kind of disappointed because I thought if I have category five in my house, boy, that would be great. Yeah. But then of course it's not, it's obsolete now, but um, that's what it was called. If I remember it was category five. Yeah. Cable. I think it's ethernet cable, cat, cat yeah. five ethernet cable. I'm familiar. I think I actually wired my, one of my old offices when I had an office using like a reel of wire and the little, uh, the little clips that you put on the end that attach to things. And we put the whole system together and ran it through the ceiling. Yeah, it was, there you uh, go. It was fun. The, the other, I think the biggest frustration for me as an account person, you know, my job was to work with everybody to get the work, to present the work, but yeah. to chase down the creative team was the biggest frustration because, you know, creative folks don't like seeing account people coming because it means, okay, I what they want, they need, they need. They need. Yeah. So the creative, like some of my creative teams, they would just go sit on the beach and work. And then you couldn't get a hold of them. No, they wouldn't answer my call. They wouldn't 
you know, I'm like, excuse me, but I need that script or I need the layout and the client call and I can't find them anywhere. And that was my single biggest frustration of the whole thing as an account person trying to, you know, shepherd this work through and trying to get them to stay on schedule. They were kind of off somewhere. <laughs> I wasn't really about to start wandering Venice Beach. So I think I did a couple of times. So let's go back to your new, your new venture. And uh, what inspired you to decide to start this thing after so many years in the agency business? You know, something got you before COVID and you had to do it. What made you interested in working from home and starting your own consultancy? You know, being in the agency business for 38 plus years is a lifetime. And running agencies are a lot, of, you know, for everyone knows it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. There, there are days where you're dealing with admin, HR, you know, housekeeping issues, and you barely get to the good client stuff till late in the day. I've always been a really big networker. And I realized that, you know, I've got my value at this point in my career is my network. I have a lot of relationships with brands, with agencies, with people. And I thought, you know, now it's probably the right time to launch my own consultancy and cast a net and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my business plan was kind of broad. It was, you know, I'd like to do agency reviews. You know, I would love to sit on the other side of the table and see under the hood of agencies and, you know, see the smoke and mirrors and call them out on it and (laughs) help clients find the best, you know, agency solution. I mean, I always thought that that would be just a joy because it's the opposite of where I've sat my whole career. Right. Um, I've always been heavily involved in business development. Um, I think, you know, I learned that early on at Shy Day. You know, Shy was a little different because, you know, there was a lot of inbound. But as I got to places like Horizon Media, I was there 15 years. And when I started, our company billings were 450 million and I'd never heard of the company and the LA office was very small. I think NBC was our big anchor client at the time. Mm -hmm. 15 years later when I left, I mean, we were a multi-billion dollar agency, but the pressure to grow was pretty intense. And so I had to get pretty resourceful to figure out what can I do from an outbound marketing standpoint to generate leads, raise our visibility and, and grow. And so all these years of figuring that out, I think I have the tools and I know the tactics to do that. And so I thought, why don't I work with agencies of all shapes and sizes and help them with their outbound marketing efforts? Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, a lot of agencies rely on inbound alone. They don't have time to do outbound. They don't like to do outbound. Um, They just, it's not their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what's the line about, you know, the shoemaker's kid's shoes. They yeah, don't have any. I know this well. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's one of those thankless parts of our business. It really is. It's thankless. You're rejected all the time. Um, but I, I kind of embraced it and I, I kind of figured out, okay, there's some things you could do to help your agency in terms of visibility, in terms of getting your name out there, in terms of opening doors, generating leads and not sitting around and waiting for the inbound to come. Now, that was tough before COVID. You, th- you think it was tough then. You know, now it's super tough. And yeah. You can't rely on inbound at all. You have to have an outbound marketing plan. 
But again, agencies either don't know how, they don't like to do it, they don't have the time to do it. So I've been able to work with some select agencies and helping them with growth. And that's in a lot of different ways. And that's been very fulfilling because it's what I really know best. Yeah. So my my practice has really kind of taken off in that I have done some agency reviews. I've got a couple on deck. I'm working with some select agencies and companies around growth. And there's some other projects that are kind of peripheral as well going on. And then on top of all that, I actually, this is kind of obscure, but I launched a space marketing agency. And that's a long story, but it, the discussions start about a year ago. I have some friends who are venture capital guys in aerospace, and they have connections with you know the NASA's of the world and different government space agencies around the globe. And we were talking about, wouldn't it be great to get brands to advertise on you know lunar landers and rockets and probes? And then we started talking about some of these space tourism companies that are coming up and not only getting brands to advertise, but also doing deals where, you know, content deals where we get uh, a documentary around the startup or even things like, you know, they're building out mission control. They need laptops. They need 3D printing. They need cloud computing. Let's get the big brands to come in and do in-kind deals. So we kind of put a team together. We've got a couple people here in LA. We have someone in Tokyo and we launched this agency. It's first to market. We've been written up in Forbes of all places about, you know, this is the next frontier, no pun intended, but it's absolutely blown up. And it's really just a passion project because I personally love space. Yeah, I love everything about it. Uh-huh. And as you can see in, in, the, in the general press is space is really becoming a hot topic. I mean, you know, look at Tesla and SpaceX, Absolutely, you know, yeah. Elon Musk and Virgin. I mean, they're commercializing space where it's becoming, you know, they're, they're having all these breakthrough uh, events happening all the time. And so it felt right and no one's doing it. So we kind of took ownership of it. Where it goes, who the hell knows? Yeah, but still, that's, I mean, it's obviously a pretty long-term proposition, but it's really interesting and exciting. And when you said that, I thought you were saying that that you had an agency that was selling advertising space, like that kind of space, you know, like print space, which kind of you are, it's space space. Yeah, we're representing space properties and we're finding brands to advertise. So yeah. in essence, we're like an outdoor company on steroids. Exactly. <laughs> but it's just, you know what it is? It's just fun. And I thought, isn't this about having some fun? And the reality is, as a consultant, I'm leveraging my network. I'm doing a lot of matchmaking too, by the way. So I'm helping brands looking for solutions that mm-hmm. you know maybe don't want to do a full-blown review. They just want a recommendation. Yeah, And I know the landscape, and so I'm able to kind of just match me. But the point is that I could, I'm could, i spending my days helping brands, helping agencies, you know, brokering introductions, helping people that are looking for work because you have to help your, mm-hmm. your peers. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing all these things, but I'm not saddled with what comes with running an agency right. where I'm dealing with, you know, staff issues and and real estate and all that admin stuff. I'm just focusing on the really, really meaty, juicy, fun stuff. 
And I've never been busier, but I've never had so much fun in my life. I thank God and count my blessings every day. That is so great. Well, how about if we shift a little bit? A lot of what you're teaching companies about developing business for themselves applies to companies that do all sorts of things other than advertising. And I imagine that some of the things you know about, some of your tips, tricks, secrets, whatever, um, would impact people who aren't in the advertising business, but maybe are doing other kinds of uh, B2B marketing, for example, um, in different areas. And I'm just wondering if you want to talk a little about, without giving away too many of your secrets, what advice you might have for people who are trying to develop business in this bizarre marketplace that we have. Well, I think the one thing that people have asked me is they've asked me for advice on some of the CRM tools. Mm -hmm. And the reality is I've never used them because I've never had approval for the budgets to employ them. And it was all about do it yourself. I'm not going to pay someone else to do it. That's, you know, that's your job, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, at Horizon, we created a proprietary database that was pretty astounding. It was inspired by Moneyball. Mm-hmm. And that was just a remarkable tool. But I do use Winmo. Winmo is a fantastic subscription-based tool that gives you insight into, you know, what brands, what agencies are you know, working with what brands and key contacts and all that. So that's really great. But, but what I tell people is that, you know, you got to look at the big picture in the long haul here. This is about networking and relationships. And you need to be building those from your first day in this business until your last. I always tell people, and I mentor a lot of students, but when I was first breaking into the business, you know, I'm an introvert by nature. I mean, networking did not come naturally to me, but I networked fiercely. And it wasn't because I recognized the value it could bring in terms of new business and all that. I did it as a survival mechanism. (laughs) Because I said to myself, if God forbid I lose a client and I lose my job, I better know people at other agencies because I don't have a safety net. I need a job. Right. So my networking was really was fear based in a sense. It was about knowing people at other agencies. So God forbid if something happened, I could pick up the phone and, and get interviews. That was the motivation. Right. But as I moved along in my career and I was servicing clients and building those relationships, clients would ask me for solutions to help solve problems. And sometimes it fell outside the core competency of what we do, whether it was media or creative. It could have been, hey, do you know a good PR firm? Right. Hey, I'm trying to solve a problem. Do you know anyone who does X? So then I, I said to myself, well, wait a minute here. I got to get to know other marketing services. I get, I have to get to know these other areas because if a client relies on me for solutions, they'll never fire me. So that was kind of that next level of networking. And then as I went up the ladder and I'm running offices or agencies, it was about the lease is up. We need new real estate, find new space. We need a new lease, get a lawyer. It was all of a sudden, it was things that were peripheral to advertising. It was about the operations of a company. Well, I've never dealt with a commercial real estate broker before. I've never had to look for office space. 
So all of a sudden, all these other areas cropped up as part of my job. But knowing people in those industries that you know and trust or you get referrals to, you started to figure out that, you know what? I have to be a singular resource for anything. Whatever a client throws at me, I got to figure it out whether I have a connection or not. And I've had some pretty weird requests. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, just things like, I need a media agency in the Philippines. Who do you got? Well, I'll figure it out. Yeah. So the networking has to start day one and it has to be managed, finessed, massaged, updated. It is a full-time job, but it pays dividends down the road because when you're tasked with finding a solution or finding new business or helping a client solve a problem, you go right to your Rolodex, which I don't think people use that term anymore, and you find the solution. Mm -hmm. Networking and relationships is critical. When I travel, when I travel, if I go to a given market, before I go, I go into my Rolodex and I sort my contacts by city. And I look to see who do I know in that market. And I try to carve out time to either call them or meet with them because they could be a potential client, a resource. You just never know. Of course. Right. And the beauty of all this is that over time, when you have a client and then they go away, they change jobs, you change agencies. And the day comes where they call you and they say, I'm now working here. I need you to take care of me. There's nothing more gratifying. That's a really interesting thing. There's a couple things that hit me about this. One is that, so you're, you describe yourself as a, as a natural introvert and networking, the way you're describing is really not much more than just creating friendships, basically, just as you go, just meeting somebody and finding out about them. And then they, that adds to your network and so on rather than the idea of cold calling and and having to sell in that sort of very aggressive way that, you know, we all associate with our telemarketers or something. Um, and I think it's a far more effective, in the long run anyway, it's a far more effective way to market yourself when you have people you can call who can either refer you or uh, who knows somebody that you like, you need to find an agency in the Philippines. So I might call you and say, Hey, Zach, who do you know? And it's, and it's that sort of being useful and being, uh, being friendly and connected with a bunch of people that really leads in the long run to the success of your business and your career. So if, if that's true, well, first of all, do you think that's true? Is that a Valid statement. Well, first of all, yes. I mean, relationships, whether they're warm or, you know, cool, you have a better shot than cold. Now, I do cold outreach for clients. And what I've learned over the years is that there's a way to do it. Your conversion rate's lower, of course, naturally. Yeah. Um, But, you know, when you're in the agency world and you get hit up by salespeople constantly, right? Especially media. I mean, there's sales folks for every conceivable platform, vendor, publisher. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. And they're all after you because they want to talk to your media department. They want to talk to your digital team. And you start to to get a, a flavor as to their styles and what you feel is effective. 
And it runs the gamut. You know, there are salespeople that are very strategic, that are not aggressive, and there's some that are very assertive. Right. And you kind of just take in like, okay, what are they doing well? And what are they not doing well? And you kind of take those cues and you use that now that you're in a position where you you two are cold calling and reaching out. So just to kind of be direct about this, if you were speaking to a young, I'm imagining somebody 28 years old who is beginning their career, they have an entrepreneurial mindset. So they tend to be you know, they're not looking for a a job where they stick in the same place for 30 years. They want to really make something happen. And they're interested in starting their own company either then or eventually. How would you advise them to begin this process of building a network? Where should they start? What should they do? Well, you have to cast a net, not only with brands, but colleagues, peers, Mm -hmm. peripheral marketing companies, sales community, really get to know people in all these different spheres. You know, I'm very active with my alma mater, and this is also something that's absolutely been extraordinary, is I've been active with the advertising department at Pepperdine for 20 plus years. What I'm finding is when I'm doing research on brands that I want to, that one of my clients wants to reach, you know, LinkedIn now will tell you if people from your school work there. And what's so extraordinary lately is that Those people, I'm not connected to them, but those people are people that came up through the advertising department and they're marketing directors at these companies. Sure. And I'm blown away by the fact that I could do research on these random companies and inevitably there's a connection that maybe I already have. Somebody went there that I know from another place or there's a a fellow alumni there. Uh It's just, it blows my mind. And, you know, also I would say, on average, once a week, I get a call or an email from someone I know saying, I'm checking out this company and you're a, a mutual connection to this individual. How well do you know them? Are you willing to make an introduction? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and it comes up all the time. And it's just I laugh because there are connections. We all have connections that some of them aren't that strong and you may not feel comfortable. But others where you do, you're happy to help them. And that's the other thing is that you've got to give to take. And if you're constantly just tapping into people, asking for favors, but you're never giving back, it's it's not going to last. Totally agree. You have to put in, it's the old equity in the bank before you could withdraw. And you have to have that attitude and you have to help people. And that's why, especially when people are out of work, you know, find ways to help these people. Because when they land somewhere, they may need your services. Yeah, I think that's a really key thing, this idea of of giving rather than worrying about taking. If you're willing to help people, you know, help people out, serve them, whatever you want to do the terminology, it comes back. And it's not just an airy-fairy thing. It, it you know, it actually works. You create goodwill out there in the world and that goodwill benefits you and people think of you. Because it's like, hey, you know, Zach did this great thing for me. And uh, yeah, let's give him a call. I'll give you an example. Um, I I write articles for the trades, but I published a tip on LinkedIn. It was on my mind. I keep in my desk drawer next to me a list of CMOs and agency folks that I know that are out of work, that are between jobs. Because, you know, how many times have you come across a profile for a job 
or someone calls and say, Hey, there's an opening for a marketing director. And you're like, Oh my God, who's out of work? I just like, you have this moment where they go out of your brain and you can't remember. Mm -hmm. So I always keep a list in my drawer. So when something comes up, I look at that list and say, are any of these folks a fit? So I put it, I, I wrote that as a tip on LinkedIn. I just said, you know what? Keep a list in your drawer of people, clients, peers that you respect that are out of work. But not only if you hear things, but stay in touch with them. Ask them how you could help. Offer a recruiter connection, whatever you can do. Because when they land somewhere, they might need your service. But do it out of the goodness of your heart. I did this. It was a brief paragraph I posted on LinkedIn. I received over 15,000 views. Wow. Which blew my mind because I've never had that many views of a post. Even my articles might be a couple thousand, but 15 plus thousand views is pretty, that's my record. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And and you can see the value of that because it's such a simple thing and it, yeah. it can turn people's lives around, including yours. Yeah. And I think, but there must be an algorithm that says like when you're doing something that's thoughtful, you know, it's going to get <laughs> distributed more than something that's more self-serving perhaps. I don't know. Uh, maybe so. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Hope so. <laughs> it's really great. All right. Well, Zach, I think uh, we should probably wrap this. It's been very, very kind of you to give me this much time and uh, don't want to take advantage, but it's really an enjoyable conversation. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I, I really enjoy talking about, you know, this part of the business and, uh, you know, in this COVID era, you know, everyone's looking for business. And on top of that, it's probably the toughest time in our lifetime to be prospecting. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe there's more we can do at some point about that specifically. Tell people where they can reach you online. So my company is Zach Rosenberg Consulting Incorporated. Mm -hmm. So um, I have my own website, ZachRosenbergConsulting.com. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so either of those, I'm on Twitter. Facebook, the whole, you know, the whole typical stuff. Mm -hmm. So website or uh, LinkedIn and my email is simply Zach at ZachRosenbergConsulting.com. That's great. All right. Well, I will put that info in the show notes along with some other links to things we've talked about. I, again, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for doing this and uh, talk to you soon, I hope. You got it. All the best. All right. Take care. Well, that's it for now. If you're new to working from home, you might want to check out worklifeathome.com, where you'll find articles, show notes, and best of all, a community where you can ask questions and get some answers from people who've been doing this a while. We'd love to see you there. And I would be thrilled to hear what you think and find out who else you'd like to hear from on the show. You can email me at josh at worklifeathome.com. If you're enjoying Work Life at Home, please do let your friends and co-workers know so they can subscribe. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. The only other thing I was going to tell you, but I didn't want to say on the, on the actual podcast, is that yeah. because I was such a big networker, mm -hmm. I went through business cards more than anyone. Oh, I can imagine. And so when a new box arrived, my friends, my colleagues would take the box and wallpaper the women's bathroom with my cards. <laughs> <laughs> I left that out. <laughs> That's great. <laughs>
Very nice. Okay. <laughs> I think that would have been a good story on the podcast, but anyway, that's cool. Okay. Okay.